Hello and welcome to Science Shambles. Producer Trent here. Over the last weekend in July, the Cosmic Shambles Network did a takeover of the listening post at the Latitude Festival. We did three different panels outdoors at Latitude on climate change, mental health and immunology. If you couldn't get along to the festival, we obviously recorded all of those sessions, so we're going to be putting those out here on the Science Shambles podcast for you to enjoy. If you'd like to support Cosmic Shambles Network, you can do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and you get lots of extra shows and behind the scenes stuff and all sorts of goodies for subscribing on there. And don't forget, you can watch live at 10am every Sunday for the Science Shambles Q&A show. Each week, Robin Ince and Helen Chesky joined by two special guests to take your questions on a variety of different science subjects. That is free to stream on our YouTube channel and obviously here on the Science Shambles podcast. So here is the first session of the day where Dr. Helen Chersky was joined by Dr. Tamsin Edwards and Professor Yadvinda Mali to talk about climate change. Hope you enjoy. Hello. Very good. You can hear me as well. And the sun's come out and you're still in a tent to listen to science. I'm very impressed with you all. Uh, As you know, hopefully, uh, we are here. The Cosmic Shambles is taking over this tent for the next three hours, four hours, something like that. Um, So, and we do, as those of you who are fans of Cosmic Shambles will know that we do this kind of thing a lot. We talk to scientists. I'm a scientist. uh, We talk to each other. We we mix everything, all the wonderful ideas of life and culture and history and science. We mix them all together. We make the most of what the human experience has to offer and especially all the interesting ideas. Um, So, there are lots of online things for Cosmic Shambles at the moment. We're a little bit slow in returning to live events. So we are going to be talking about climate and nature this afternoon. Now, so we're going to have a chat amongst ourselves. We do uh, have the opportunity for questions towards the end. It's just you're going to have to shout. So if you do have questions, there will be a bit of time or I might stop in the middle to see if you've got any questions. Bear in mind, you might have to relay the message to the front if you have a question, Um, but we will try to get to some of your questions as well. So I have two fabulous people with me here on stage. Uh, Dr. Tamsin Edwards is a climate scientist and a lecturer at King's College London. Um, Professor Yavinda Malhi is a professor uh, of a, a researcher and professor of ecosystem science at the University of Oxford. You know what one of the problems of science is that as everyone gets more and more and more specialized, their job titles get longer and longer and longer. And we really need some kind of cat- like some library system. Where's the Dewey Decimal system for, for scientists? That's what I want to know. So um, we're going to be talking about uh, particularly nature-based solutions to climate and, and sort of digging into some of, the, some of the issues underneath the surface. But I want to start with COP. We are hearing a lot. Uh, COP26 is going to start in Glasgow towards the end of the year. And we're hearing a lot about it on the news. But sometimes it's a bit hard to know what, what, what all the fuss is about, frankly. Tamsin, what is all the fuss about? Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm really happy that this, this phrase COP26 is getting more attention and traction. Um, I'm finding kind of journalists are asking me about it, friends and family. So COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And it's actually something that happens every year. Of course, not last year. This is the postponed one. As part of the um, 
the big global political uh, framework for acting on climate change that goes back to the early 90s, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC. And basically, it's been this mechanism for getting all the different um, nations together to try and figure out what to do. Uh, and, you know, but you can tell by the number 26 and the fact that it happens every year that it's taken some time to get some traction. And so the famous Paris Agreement of 2015 was one of the COPs, uh, 21. Um, and so that was a big landmark COP because there was this agreement to, um, to limit warming to less than two degrees, well below two degrees of warming since pre-industrial times, and pursue efforts to limit warming to one and a half degrees uh, since pre-industrial. Well, now we're around about 1.1 or so. Um, so this is all about updating the pledges of each nation to reduce their emissions under that framework. And they have this thing called the national, Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs, where each country pledges to reduce their emissions by a certain percentage in the next five years, in the next 10 years, and so on. So we're looking for all the countries to basically ratchet up their ambition. And this is a particularly important year within that process. Every five years is a particular stage of updating those pledges. Um, and Yadvinda, you've been to some of these events. What are they like? What happens at them? Uh, uh, yes, they can be uh, quite complicated things to, to, to navigate. Uh, so uh, on one side is a big jamboree, like a big festival. You have all the businesses and NGOs and campaigners gathering and, and presenting their points. And then within there, there's an inner circle, which is all the high-level negotiators and the different countries and the representatives of the different countries uh, being in rooms, hacking out the details of, of agreements. And sometimes uh, I've been at rooms at 3 o'clock in the morning where delegates are, are just trying to work out what to say about protecting forests or what to do uh, about uh, uh, negotiating a particular... So there's a lot of detail in there. We hear yes. about these big things in the news, but there are rooms with people who are really, like, digging Arguing away... Arguing over every comma every little and bit. every paragraph. Uh, and does the, does the, is it mostly science or mostly politics? That inside one is mostly politics. And then what the interesting thing is the politics is based on scientific ideas, but you're there as a scientific representative, you're trying to make sure the science keeps feeding in because ultimately it's a political agreement between countries. And what, what do we just, while we're on COP for a second, what, what are we looking out for this year? We're gonna hear the UK, you know, the UK's uh, chairing the process or hosting it. Uh, they're supposed to be leading the process. If it goes well, what will we hear afterwards? Is, is there an obvious thing we'll know whether it's well, gone well? Well, what, uh, what was agreed in Paris uh, was to aim well below two degrees. And, but what Paris allowed was this gradual build-up. So countries were able to make their own commitments. No one was forced to making a certain level of commitment. And the idea is that after a few years, those commitments be uh, ramped up in ambition as more and more governments got on board. And currently, governments have made commitments. But those commitments point us to about three degrees of warming. So we're well short of the target. So and yeah. This meeting is the crucial one where we see those commitments really ramp up. And success would be if we start approaching two degrees in terms of the commitments governments are making. Failure would be if we're, it's a wish-wash and we're around two and a half degrees. In so it's kind of, you've got to put, you put your money where your mouth is. Like exactly. you, you can go, oh, yes, it's all very nice, but here's what we're actually going to do. So yeah, and, and I think you know some big countries like the US and China have made 
statements about going to net zero emissions by 2050, by 2060, but they haven't yet necessarily put those into this official form, this NDC or nationally determined contribution form. Now, if we took those, those kind of... Um, those statements, those kind of news cycle statements, if you like, of net zero, those do start to approach getting down to kind of a bit above two degrees, which is looking more optimistic if they put it into these official pledges. But then again, you've got the pledges is different from the action. You know, how are you going to put it into practice? What actual laws are you going to put into place to phase out fossil fuel cars, fossil fuel energy, and so on? Yeah. So I want to... I feel that a lot of this happens in two... There's the, there's the big stuff, which is politicians very far away, although Glasgow isn't that far away, talking about things which seem, you know, like commas. Who cares where the comma goes? But somebody cares. But it doesn't actually change anything in the real world. So what I, I want to spend a chunk of time talking about something we hear a lot about. So what are we going to do about it, right? We've all heard... There's all these basic things that are... Um, you know, we need to fly less and ch perhaps change our diets. You know, there's all this, there's this kind of shopping list. And um, my problem with the shopping list is that a shopping list makes you powerless, right? It's like, here's your list of things, and if you tick all these boxes, then it will be okay. And actually, if the world changes, then the boxes change and you haven't really got anywhere. So I think what I think what we need is a sort of more fundamental shift in how we think about how we run our civilization. And so this is where nature-based solutions come in. And there's basically this idea that, um, well, the planet runs. That's all right. It's got a system. It works well. Why don't we tap into what's already happening? Um, so, Yadvinda, you've done a lot of work on this. How much there is this idea that if we just let nature take everything back over, it's all going to be all right. Is that true? Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is that the degree of our fossil fuel emissions and carbon dioxide emissions are so huge that uh, uh, letting nat restoring nature is important, but it can never be adequate uh, for that. And so that doesn't mean it is important. And I think there is suddenly a real realization in the last few years that we need to restore nature in the UK and globally. It's very depleted, and we need to turn that round uh, for its own sake. And there are some win-win options where restoring forests, uh, putting more soil back, uh, carbon back into our soil agricultural systems can have climate benefits and also benefit biodiversity and, and bring all those things uh, together. So they can be a part of the, of the contribution. Uh, we recently did a calculation and we reckon that if there was a global annual really ambitious program of nature-based solutions, it could lower global temperatures by 0.1 degree after, after 1.5 degree target or 0.3 degrees of a two degree target. So it's significant, but it wouldn't solve, solve the problem. So it'll get you a little, it'll, it'll yeah. help out, but it's not gonna get you all the way there. So just let's set the context a bit for these nature-based solutions because um, planting a tree all sounds very nice, but planting a tree is no good if the tree, well, it's of limited use if you then, when it dies, you burn it. <laughs> so um, Tamsin, let, how much, like what, what what, what are the things we think of as nature-based solutions and how much can they help? What do they mean? Yeah, well, as we've just heard, um, planting trees is the most kind of famous one. Um, and it's something that's been around for a long time in terms of carbon offsetting of flights, plants, some trees and so on. 
One that's getting a bit more attention in the UK, I think, is, um, is, is restoring and preserving peatlands because um, peat has an incredible amount of carbon locked up in the ground, which takes a really long time to build. I mean, not as long as coal, uh, but, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years for those carbon stores. So we have a lot of peat, uh, of course, in Scotland, um, uh, in you know, lots of parts of the world, Ireland, uh, lots of regions of the world, where we need to make sure we keep um, that that you know nice boggy peat, um, so it doesn't dry out and release its CO2, its carbon dioxide. So um, the peat is the carbon, and if it dries out, and, and people b have burned it for fuel, and then the carbon just comes up. So that's so so there's a kind of battery stored carbon. Exactly. So we don't want to be using it for fuel. We don't want to be using it for compost. This is something that people don't always realise. When you buy compost, you must buy peat-free because stupidly, it's not yet illegal to to use peat for compost. So really, that's one that's one easy action. And if you're trying do. to do this right, if it doesn't say it's peat-free, it is not. Yeah. And then you need to go and nag and nag and your garden centers basically sorry i will let you get back but i've got a right beer in my bonnet about this so i'm going to have my peat um sort of <laughs> soapbox here yeah. which is that um almost all compost has peat as a major component and so new horizons and somebody else sell peat free compost which doesn't have peat um and otherwise it does and if they don't have it you need to go to your garden center and bug them and bug them to stock peat free compost the Royal Cultural Society has finally pushed everybody to make a, a, a voluntary commitment to get rid of peat uh, in their compost. It's voluntary. They may or may not do it. But why the, one of the reasons it bugs me about this is because I remember my mother was a member of Friends of the Earth when I was a kid. And I remember going around with her, around garden centres when I was 14. I'm not telling you how old I am. You can look it up on Wikipedia if you really want to know. But the point is that was a long time ago. And we were bugging people about peat-free compost back then. And it's only just starting to change. And so I'm very impatient. So your, your roses are very nice. But you know what? poo, well rotted, is great. So use that instead. Anyway, so that is the peat-free compost rant. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and for, for a couple of other solutions, and, and, and we can both cover stuff, um, I, if you permit me a, a small plug. Um, so I, I, I've been involved in this... Um, interesting series, uh, with, I, well I think it's interesting, hopefully you will too, um, with BBC Radio 4 um, called 39 Ways to Save the Planet. Uh, we're about halfway through the series now, we're recording some more next week actually. And we've got a few other examples, um, so for example, people don't necessarily realise there's a huge amount of carbon in um, coastal ecosystems, so things like sea grasses, again, um, up in Scotland is one example, um, and mangroves around the world, and so again, restoring and preserving those is a really important nature-based solution. There are others that use um, use kind of vegetation and things that I think we wouldn't call nature-based. I mean, I think the definition of nature-based would include something that is, is sensitive to biodiversity and, and nature. Um, so, for example, biofuels of using crops uh, as fuel, I think we even know it would reduce our emissions and, in fact, pull CO2 out of the air if we then captured the CO2 when we burned the fuel. Um, it it kind of uses nature and it uses plants and trees, but it's not a nature-based solution. I don't know if you want to add any other sort of point. Yes, I would agree. I think uh, nature-based solutions have to be ones that at least are neutral for biodiversity and ideally beneficial for nature itself rather than just exploiting nature in another way to... So the, the difference here is that if you plant a monoculture of exactly the same tree in a grid and you weed around it, those are trees. But if you 
planted those same trees and allowed an ecosystem to grow around them and support that ecosystem, that's a more, that supports biodiversity. Yes, so, yes. so let's talk about the Amazon then, because Janvinder, this is something you have. You, you told me you'd been in a forest fire in the Amazon. Tell me about that. First well, of all. Uh, we do a lot of work in the Eastern Amazon about uh, the risk. Uh, just, to get, well, just to step back a bit, uh, the Amazon is one of these key areas of concern under climate change and what's sometimes called tipping points, that currently the Amazon absorbs carbon and acts as a slight break on climate change, and if it wasn't doing what it was doing, climate change would be around 10% faster than it is. Uh, but there's a real worry that under global warming or under deforestation, it'll start releasing more carbon. Uh, and, so uh, why is it going to, why would, it, why would, it, why would a, a rainforest that had been taking up carbon suddenly start releasing it? Uh, one reason could be just drought directly, the more extreme climates causing trees to die and release the carbon that they're holding. But the other one, that is probably the more likely one, is fires leaking from farmers' fields. Farmers use fire to manage their cattle ranches. And if the forest is dry temporarily during a dry season, those fires can leak in and burn quite large areas of forest. And these fires in the Amazon, they're not like the things you see in California, you know, with trees totally ablaze. There's the litter layer that burns and you can walk over these fires. You can so stop the, these. So the trees are all up here, but there's a load of organic matter on the ground, and yes, that's yes. what's burning. Yeah, and you can walk over these fires. You can stop these fires by kicking the litter out the way. But if you come back into that forest one year later, half the trees are dead. And it's because the trees in the Amazon are not adapted to having even a slight fire that just burns their bark slightly. And so uh, in the end, it has devastating consequences. And we, we calculated that uh, in the El Nino of 2016, uh, about two and a half billion trees were killed by fire in, in the middle of the Amazon. And are these in any sense natural? Because we hear about, you know, wildfires in California, there are spe tree species certainly that need the heat of a fire to, you know, let their seedlings. So there's a natural cycle of small fires. Is that the case in the Amazon? I mean, it's, it's wet. It sounds yes. unlikely that uh, fires are so normal. <laughs> some ecosystems, fire is a natural part of the ecosystem. Savannas are one. But even places like California or Australia, the eucalypt forests, you'd expect them to burn every few years and uh, the problem is both with the intense climate the fires get more intense and also in the case of Australia or California uh, because there hasn't been a regular fire regime a lot of fuel builds up so when the fires come they're really really intense because people don't manage fires well but in the Amazon in the wet Amazon there's no history of fire which is why these trees are not adapted to fire and even this weedy little litter layer fire ends up killing significant amounts of trees. So we heard that big news story, uh, I think it was last week, that the Amazon was now emitting more carbon than it was taking up. Is that, is, is that the future now? I mean, we, we were sort of used to thinking of, the, you know, the Amazon is the lungs, and if we sort of look after that bit, well, at, at least there's a lot of green stuff, you know, that's all right. Is, are we looking at a future where the Amazon might actually, as the planet warms, might actually start to Boot, you know, send things the other way. But potentially, that's, that's the worry. So in that recent study, uh, that was saying that the areas that are where there's deforestation, as, as we know for a long time, are releasing carbon. And the bits of the Amazon that are intact are still absorbing carbon, but it's getting weaker over time as the climate warms. And what they found is that the net balance was release over, over time now. Well, so that's a good point to start talking about sources and things. This is going to get, it's not technical, but it's a big way of thinking about things. And I think it's important, even though we are in a tent in a field. Um, and, and this is about the idea that, so their carbon is emitted naturally for lots of reasons, like breathing. We're all emitting carbon, but it's, it's all right. Don't feel guilty. Um, so, and so they're huge natural 
sinks. So there are sources where carbon is being given out naturally, and there are sinks where it's being taken in. And one of the things we don't see when we talk about climate change and what Tamsin was saying about the degree, you know, the, the, um, the warming is that that's like a tiny, like there's a massive amount of carbon given out naturally. There's a massive amount of carbon taken in naturally. And then the problem is we've added an extra bit that hasn't got a balancing thing to take it out. And we talk about the extra carbon we're putting in, but we don't talk about the natural systems that are drawing down carbon. Because if we don't look after them, we've got a problem. So tell us a little bit about the problem if, Tamsin, if carbon sinks stop working so well. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's all about, um, well, a nice analogy people quite often use for sinks and things is, um, well, kind of also plumbing related, which is a bath. Um, so if you think of uh, a tap pouring water into a bathtub, um, and if you've got the plug open, uh, if you get the, the, the rate of the tap um, to match the water going out, then the level is going to stay constant. So if you think of the level of the water as the concentration of our CO2 in the atmosphere, that's what we want to be reducing. And so what we want to make sure is that the water coming out the plug hole um, is, is, is not slowing down and, and really needs to be speeding up by nature-based solutions or by us extracting it with sort of technological methods. And so, yeah, this, this incredibly complicated carbon cycle, I mean, it's one of the most challenging parts, I think, of the Earth system of our planet to understand. All these, um, you know, these processes that are adding CO2 to the air, taking it back out, that depend on each other, that depend on temperature and rainfall. It's a fine balance. And, and uh, you know, when we have increasing CO2 in the air, that's good for, for plants as well. That will help many plants grow and bring CO2 out of the air. But as we've just heard, when it's warmer, uh, when it's drier, plants are more likely to die, to, to burn uh, faster decomposition, which lets it back out again. So it's all about those delicate balances. And anyone who kind of says, oh, you know, we're only emitting a little bit of CO2, it's only a small fraction of the air in the atmosphere, that's a, that's a red herring, because it's about the balance. You know, you uh, just like a bank account, it's all about the in income versus outcome. Uh, yeah. So from that, it's a good place to move on to the question of techno-optimism, um, which we touched on a bit before, but there is this, uh, it's a family tent, so I won't quote Matt Damon from uh, that, the, the Mars film, but I'm sure you all know, it, you all know what it is. Um, but there's this, there's this idea that science is going to sort everything, we're just going to invent some more things, and those things we invent are going to sort out the problem of the other things we invented. Um, so where do we stand on techno, technological solutions to all this? Yadvinder, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, my take is that we need a whole mixture of solutions and technology certainly plays the part. And for example, on climate change, I'm actually more optimistic now than, than I was 10 years ago because renewables, uh, solar and wind, have moved much faster than anybody imagined 10 or 15 years ago. So clearly technology is a part of the solution, but it isn't enough. You need the whole package. You need thinking about our society, our infrastructure, uh, the basis of, you need the political will and the leadership uh, 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 to reshape how society works. And you also need the, nat the natural components as well and all the benefits that come from restoring nature. So I'm, I'm cautious about people who just think technology would just solve it and we were okay, we just need to get the technology right. But I think technology certainly, if we didn't have the technology, we'd be even more in more trouble and we'd be even more pessimistic. Yeah, I, I believe Matt Damon said, let's science the poo out of this. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think, you know, if there's one thing to take away from any climate sort of policy thing, it's 
is a, I'm sort of slightly stealing a quote from one of our um, interviewees on the, on the radio series, is that when it comes to climate solutions, we've left it too late for this or this. We only have to say this and this, right? So we have to do everything, just, you know, so I completely agree. Um, and I think, you know, there are these... I, actually, I was in... Um, uh, Iceland on holiday um, a couple of weeks ago and I saw this uh, really interesting um, f it's basically technological solution uh, which can complement these things called uh, well two, there's two parts to it um, uh, carb fix is, is one of the, the names you can look up if you're interested so part of the part of the kind of demo project is to extract CO2 from the air with chemical methods now this isn't going to be a kind of fix everything solution because it's still very expensive and it takes a lot of energy so at the moment it's not worth doing at scale and then what they do is they put the CO2 in, into water, uh, basically soda water, and pump it back uh, into the ground, into the basalt, because, of course, Iceland is um, very volcanic. And the basalt has calcium and magnesium ions, which, re uh, which react with the CO2 and turn the CO2 into rock, <laughs> into calcium carbonate, sort of chalk, basically. And you get these little white flecks inside the basalt. So that's, you know, that's a technological and, and also geological solution um, of carbon capture and storage of, of direct air capture as we call it from the air and then capturing it and storing it which sometimes you know these these phrases get bandied around and get a bit of a bad rep you know people can be instinctively against techno solutions but really it's about explaining well what are the pros and cons you know the co2 turned into rock it's not going anywhere it's not going to escape as a gas so I think it really shows that um, it's not just about the technology but about and the political will, but also public you know, understanding and support. You know, people have to know, like, what are these different solutions? What are they going to mean for people's lives? What are the pros and cons? Every solution has pros and cons. You, know, you can't find a perfect solution. And again, there's no magic bullet is the single phrase of, of this stuff. Yeah. Well, it's important, isn't it, that the problem is everyone says, well, what about this? But nobody's, there's always two options. There's always the thing and not the thing. And everyone talks about the advantages and disadvantages of the thing, but they don't necessarily say, but if we don't do that, here are the advantages and disadvantages of that approach. And I think that, that's because it's easy to be against. There's always a reason to be against anything. Like, nothing's perfect, like you said. But is it the, the question, we're not in a position where we can say, is it better from a neutral position? We're like, well, is it better than worse than the alternative? And we need to talk about the alternative. Did you have something to add? Yeah. I think one thing with any, because we need the whole range of solutions, one danger we have to avoid, though, is with any one solution, if that diffuses attention from dealing with the other problems. So you mean like it, Elon Musk trying to go to Mars to uh, solve the one example. Well, might be deflecting, running away yeah. from the problems. Or even with tree planting, if, uh, if it... Uh, normalizes business as usual, say in fossil fuel emissions. So if, if you know, we still keep on extracting oil and burning it, saying, oh, well, a technology solution will come 10 or 20 years down the line, or we'll plant trees and forests and we're okay. Uh, that's a moral hazard. I think there's a danger in some of these solutions deflecting us from the fundamental problem, which is that we're pouring carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we need to stop doing that. Humans are really bad at change, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can keep you alive in lots of situations if you don't go around eating plants you've never seen that turn out to be poisonous. But there is this, like, we will do almost anything to, to keep things familiar. Mm -hmm. Like, 
If you really watch, people are desperate. Like, if I do that, then I can keep doing this. It's always got, and I can keep doing this. Which brings us to the topic of personal responsibility. Because I think one of the things that's very difficult about the climate debate is that half of it happens away in policy land, and people have written laws and things, and, you know, someone far away is thinking about it. And the other half is people saying, you should do this, and you should do that, and you should change this. So... I know you've got opinions on this. Where do you stand on the personal? How, how much? How much? How guilty do we need to feel? Like how much? Whose responsibility is it? I think there's some role for personal responsibility because uh, ultimately, I think you've got to you know, walk the walk, uh, uh, and uh, and engage with the issues at a personal level. But I think there's also a danger that these sometimes, often when we talk about climate change, it ends up being about how can I improve my life? How, I, how can I be more, more morally pure in myself? And that's enough. You mean you don't uh, want a halo when you wake <laughs> up in the morning? I wouldn't get a halo very easily. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but then actually I think COVID was really telling how far personal responsibility can go. That if we look at last year, we had the most extreme behavioral change. No one traveled. Uh, no one commuted, no one flew on aeroplanes, and emissions dropped by, I can't remember the exact number, 7 or 8% globally. Not a lot. That's the limit of personal behavior change, uh, the most extreme possible personal behavior change. What's needed is system change, our heating systems, our transport systems, uh, and, the, uh, and how they're powered, how they're fueled. They're the things that are going to make the difference, and the political voting in government and the political leadership that makes that happen. The personal behavior is only going to be 10% of the solution. So the point is that you, sorry, you, you cannot go out, but still you're using electricity that comes from a power station, your food gets transported to you, it's grown in a certain way, and those things are not affected by whether or not you go out of the house. Yeah. Go on, Sam. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, we need to be dropping emissions by something like 5% year on year. Right? We need to be making that difference that COVID made every year. On, you know, year on year, basically. Um, and, and how hard is that? I mean, is that a big... Like, if we, if we change the obvious systems, does it get better? Or is it, like, scrabbling for every tiny, every 1%? Yeah, it is scrabbling. Uh, you know, as we've talked about, using every, every kind of lever and every tool we can think of. But, yeah, absolutely, to, to, um, to echo the point that so much of it is around this big stuff, like, we've got to make energy in low-carbon ways. But, you know, but... But people uh, and people's views do feed into that because, of course, governments want to be popular and companies want to be popular. And so the way that you can um, have influence, I always say, is is not so much, um, uh, or, or not certainly not only in your own actions in your own home, but do you bug your supermarkets and your restaurants and your politicians um, and your local council as well as MPs to to say this is important. What are you doing about this? You know. Um, um, I've heard that uh, one of the reasons businesses are starting to get better at acting on climate change is because young people are not wanting to work for them unless they have a credible carbon strategy that isn't greenwashing. So, like, your influence does make a difference. And I think how to influence bigger systems uh, as, as a... As a as a mass, as a public group, is a really powerful tool to make to, to, for the UK government, for national governments, for companies around the world, for banks and businesses and all of these things to actually say, right, you know, this has got public support, we better get a move on, you know, and, and in fact, if we don't get a move on, we will be seen badly. Yeah. And it, they do, I mean, they do listen, like, I mean, you can see now supermarkets have started reducing the plastic, you know, there's still a lot of plastic in the grocery store, but... 
I'm not in America. What is it? Supermarkets, food, fruit, fruit, fruit and vegetable aisle, something like that. Um, but you know, but the, that's because if you go at the end of the day, what you'll see is that all the fruit that was either loose or was uh, in cardboard pot, that's all gone. And what's le like people are choosing, maybe there was less of it to start with, but in general, it looks like people are choosing the ones. And, and that's a strong, you know, they do pay attention to that. Um, so I want to talk about language for a second. Well, actually, let's, so let's come to carbon offsets while we're on that, before we get to the language. Because carbon offsets are often sold as, the, especially for flying, um, you just, if you just offset the carbon, it's all fine. So let's deal first with net zero and why it matters, why the net matters. And then let's get to the offset. So do you want to do the net zero and you can do the offsets? Go on then. Uh, yeah, so net zero is this term that's now flying around every day in the news, and, and we don't often necessarily explain what it means. And the idea is that basically, um, partly because we've left it late and partly because it's very difficult, we can't really get to zero emissions, kind of pure zero, to not emit any carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, basically we're saying it's, it's unavoidable to still emit a bit and something like flying might be, might be one example of that. Um, and so net zero is the idea that at the same time we've got to be pulling some CO2 back out of the air with the kinds of methods that we've talked about, planting trees, technological methods, for those last few uh, sort of billion tonnes of carbon dioxide that we put into the air each year. Now, so apart from the offsetting, actually, I just want to make one quick point, is that we always talk about trying to get to net zero emissions, so no new CO2 into the air by, say, 2050 or a bit earlier or a bit later. What we don't talk about, when you look at the projections from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for what we need to limit warming to one and a half or two degrees, we don't just go to net zero, we go to net negative afterwards. So by the end of the century, we need to be pulling more carbon dioxide out of the air than we're putting in. And we never talk about net negative, right? The, the curve doesn't just stop at zero. We have to go below zero, which is like an incredible sort of idea. And there aren't many technologies that are scalable at the moment. Basically, there's no single technology that can scale to get us to net zero. So we have to use this kind of portfolio of different methods and keep increasing them while being sustainable, while thinking about biodiversity, while thinking about livelihoods, while thinking about environmental pollution. And people are doing this, but it's clearly hard. <laughs> Okay, so on the offset, so if you have to fly somewhere, for example, um, and the, the airline says, well, give us, I mean, it's usually a horribly small, it's like five or 10 quid. It never feels, doesn't feel like it's doing very much. What do they do with that money or what might they do with it? Well, if it's a good project, uh, it, it would go into some uh, reforestation or, or restoration project that had a, a longevity and a guarantee it involved local communities and provided 20 to 30 years of surety that that, that that carbon is locked and safe. Unfortunately, there are a lot of not good projects as well, a lot of cowboy projects out there. So you really have to... So how do you tell? You know, like, because uh, sometimes there's, a, there's some choices, right? And, yeah. and, you know, you can do it yourself. You can go and look. You say, I want to offset this much carbon. How do you know? It can be hard, and this is part of the problem. There are these standards out there, but they're actually tricky. And one of the problems in offsetting is knowing what the, what's called the counterfactual, what would have happened without the project. Is this project really additional? And so if you're trying to protect a forest, you have to, to what do you presume about how it would have deforested over time? I, because of that reason, I tend to like restoration projects because you're bringing back nature, which I just like as an idea, but also 
it's more easy to show, to show the causality that this was, this was a, a field before or a degraded area, and now there's a forest there. So you're not trying to model what would have happened to this in the same way in the future. So, so, they, ca so they can work, but you have to be careful, is that? You have to work out what, the, uh, you know, what, what would have happened alternatively. But, but I think uh, with offsets, uh, it goes back to a point that I made slightly earlier on about whether the offsets are just normalizing the problem, uh, so it's okay, I can keep it. flying as long as I keep bunging five quid to yeah. the airline to do something. Yes. Or, or whether they're actually dealing with you know, the difficult part of it. So you know, as an example, as a climate scientist, every few years I'd go to a big international conference and we'd pay our offsets and you know, the conference would declare itself carbon neutral. Uh, but actually with COVID, we've been rethinking some of that and thinking, well, actually, maybe we have regional conferences connected through the internet and things, and the, uh, the footprints are, are much less. And that sort of system level change uh, doesn't get encouraged by having carbon offsetting, where you think, oh, well, it, it's okay. And, and so there's, there's the danger of offsetting, just normalizing all the other bad behaviors that, 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 that accompany it. But I think if it goes down to the really difficult final bits of net zero, and then we draw down through trees or carbon capture, I think that's a legitimate use uh, of, of carbon offsetting. And I think both um, uh, both of these topics that we've talked about um, can be used as as greenwashing by um, so as a as, as a great example is um, uh, Shell who have made all these wonderful claims about planting forests to offset emissions. I had one of my I I run a masters at Kings on climate change um, and last year one of my students looked at you know at the kind of credibility of these schemes and. You know, there's very little detail. You know, clearly, when, she, when you actually talk to Shell, they haven't really thought through what the carbon will be. You know, they're talking about big monoculture plantations, which is not good for biodiversity. You know, this is the, the interesting thing about someone like Shell is also, I think I saw in, on Twitter, um, not only do they think about offsetting as a way to, to restore their reputation, but I saw a, a, a tweet saying, um, you know, what, what are you doing to, uh, to oh, yeah. limit your um, impact on the planet? It's like, well, no, Shell. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> uh, and, and these big companies, they love to blame it on the individual. They love to highlight individual action because it takes the um, attention off them. And Shell basically have it in their shareholder report, which is that they're not, they're they'll keep up with society if society does anything. That is, that is almost... A, like but it shows, you know, and there's an interesting kind of underlying point here about regulation and about the law, which are, are not necessarily seen as kind of interesting aspects of climate change, but I think they're incredibly interesting. Um, in terms of the... Uh, the, the businesses that are trying to minimize their um, possibility of getting sued in the future for not acting on climate change, in terms of shareholders who are uh, green activists who are buying shares in companies and then saying, if you, buy, if you use my money to build a coal power plant, you're endangering my money because coal is, is not going to be around in the future. It's a dead you know, industry and therefore, you know, basically voting against that and, and preventing that coal power plant happening. They're in incredible groups. Um, Client Earth is the most famous one who works on this. Um, but it's just not seen as, 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 as fun. So I've got a friend, um, Joanna Setzer, who, who works on climate law at the London School of Economics. And I told her I was coming to Latitude to talk. And she said, oh, climate law, working in climate law doesn't get you invited <laughs> to talk at festivals. So basically, we'll climate law year. and regulation <laughs> is, is really interesting. And lots of people work on it at King's and lots of other places of how to use those levers to really to change those systems. Well, what we do, well, so I want to move on to the topic of language, and there's a reason for this, which is that 
I have a bee in my, and you may well disagree with me, but I'm going to set up my stall on this. I hate these phrases that are like 10 years to save the planet. And I think they're really damaging for lots of reasons. They imply, firstly, that if we, we just do a thing now, then it's all going to go away in the future. Um, they're kind of uh, alarmist rather than constructive. And, you know, I recognize that they want to. They, they want to instill a sense of urgency, but they also set it up as a kind of to-do list thing that if we just do something extreme now, it'll go away. And I think we need to rethink the whole of our, how our civilization, civilization works. And it's really exciting. We could do all these things better. We could have good communities and we could have good transport. It would just look a bit different. And I think that this whole 10 years to save the planet thing takes people away from, let's just think that there are better ways to live. Why wouldn't we choose those? So language and this thing. like do either of you have a bee in your bonnet about that you don't have to agree with me go on <laughs> i think you know my my bee in the in the bonnet about this i suppose which is that the this idea of um uh whether it's a certain date and time whether it's even a particular temperature threshold encourages this binary thinking people who say it's too late to save the planet it's too late to stop climate change uh we've only got this many years you know we're going to blow our carbon budget it implies that there's there's a world that's kind of completely dead and gone or completely great and actually it is a spectrum, and every 0.1 degrees of you know, climate change that we prevent helps, and every tonne of CO2 that we avoid putting into the air or take back out helps. It's a spectrum, and, and you can't just throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, it's too late. It's not too late. We can act all the time to change Well, there's starting to be this language now, isn't it, where we're seeing with COVID that there's this, oh, well, we have to live with it. And there's a lot of climate activists and scientists who I think are worried that, oh, well, we just have to live with it. They're kind of like, okay, we're going down the bad route just get over yourselves and live with it and yeah there's an equity thing there and there's been a, a lot of discussion around um there's a certain kind of group of people that get quite doomist about this and say well uh, you know we can't possibly adapt to climate change or or we'll have to adapt because we can't prevent it and often those those um, opinions come from a, a position of privilege where they can actually personally live with climate change. They can buy some air, you know, air conditioning for their home, or they can move, or you know, they have options. And actually, it's the people on the ground. It's the people who are already vulnerable to extreme weather, who are already in in developing countries with weaker in infrastructure and political systems. They have to live with it, and they have to d prevent it as as best as possible. And they can't just throw their hands up in the air and say, "Oh well, we." thought about it and we didn't do it so we gave up so what do you say about how to frame the argument because fundamentally the language comes from wanting to motivate people so let's get on to how to motivate us all to be part of something better and just do this all better how what do you see when it comes to yeah that? i think it's an interesting question i i, I have a uh a, a slide that i often talk to my students about where i talk about have cassandra on one side and uh, and uh a professor have a uh, from Voltaire's Candide, anyway, the, an optimist, uh, the name's gone, gone from my mind now, but an eternal optimist, somebody who always saw the, the bright side of everything, the You've good. Got a pessimist and, and optimist. Yeah, that's right. And I think as environmentally concerned people, as, as, as climate scientists, we need to navigate between the two. And there's a danger of being so optimistic that you, uh, everybody thinks, oh, it's going to be okay, the scientists think uh, uh, it's, all, oh, it's all positive. And there's a danger of being so alarmist that you bring despair. Uh, but both work sometimes, and I, I mean, Greta Thunberg is an alarmist. She's, she's very strong in her statements, and there's no doubt that she's really mobilized people and communities into action, and all credit to her for doing that. Uh, 
Uh, at the same time, I, sometimes I disagree in some of the language that she uses and alarmism, but I think it was really effective. But at the same time, there's lots of studies showing that a lot of people are just switched off by, by another crisis, another catastrophe, uh, another disaster, and this sense of powerlessness. Because climate change is such a diffuse problem. It leaves you feeling so powerless all the time. And the, one of the things that really attracts me uh, is this nature restoration recovery agenda, because, both because it's important in terms of biodiversity, but we can tell a story about building something rather than, rather than stopping bad things happen. We can tell a story about making good things happen. And, uh, and I think that is just a way of engaging people that carries much further and, and gets more done in, in the long I term. Think, I think that the, the having a positive view of the future is a much, and there are just so many better ways to run our society. We're going to have a go at audience questions. Now, this may not work. Um, you might have to, but we've got one. Well, this is the best person in the room to ask a question because she's closest. Shout out your question. So to repeat the question, just so we've got it for the podcast, um, the question was that we talked about pressuring employers as a way of getting them to do things. So the question was, if uh, you're, you work in a business and you want to encourage your company to behave well rather than badly, what, could, what, top, what are the top three things they could do, Tamsin? Yeah, great question. Um, well, so when you're communicating to, um, you know, say your boss or the people that you, you're the boss of, that this matters to you, um, uh, so, so first of all, is that it matters to you, and that, that you know that you think you, you know you're pointing out that this is important. Um, but I think um, you know, and second, that there is an obligation. There's a there's a legal obligation under the under the UK law to reduce our emissions. You know, it's not just like well, we'll do it if we can. You know, but if not, we won't bother. You know, there's a legal obligation, and the UK is actually quite a leader on making it law that we've got to reduce our emissions. But it's about getting um, good advice as well on how to do it. So there's a website called sciencebasedtargets.org, which is all about um, businesses um, making a plan to commit to get to net zero and, and laying out how they're going to do that and sort of pledging it and getting registered under this big database. And that's, that's one of the more well-known ones. Um, so it's really about getting that advice. I mean you know, uh, to, to sort of slightly plug my master's uh, again, and I know one of my students is here, he's a musician, um, Sasha, in, in playing one, in one of the bands. Um, you know, you can, you can train and, uh, to then go and become a climate consultant in these different industries or at, in these different industries or, or as doctors, you can go to people to get this advice, whether it's informally unpaid advice, which you can often get if people can give it, or whether it's officially through consultancy. This is a hugely expensive area, the master's program has been doubling year on year over the last three years of, of people wanting to train up to get, how do we understand how to do this? How do we make it work for different industries? In November, during COP, I'm giving a talk to um, like 3,000 vets, right, which is not necessarily an obvious um, audience for climate uh, interest, but they're super fired up about it. So yeah, it's, it's getting that professional advice on how to go about it through, through organizations like Science Based Targets. And I would add to that, actually, be the one who talks the language. Be the one that says, oh, well, we, we know that's obviously that thing we do is obviously not a good thing for climate things. So we need to talk about like normalizing that. Oh, well, there's just other ways to do things. So let's do the other one. Because I, I see a certain in organizations, people kind of no one else is saying it. So they're reluctant. Be the one that says it. 
be the one that says, well, that's clearly not a very good idea in the long run. Let's not invest in coal-fired power stations because that's clearly going out of business very, very quickly. It's about embedding climate in every single decision, right? So we li it's about thinking we're swimming in the waters of, of climate change and climate solutions. We've got to consider climate change in every single decision that we make. That's the, that's the mindset that we have to get to. It's part, part of being a good citizen. It's, it's not another task. It's just we want to be good citizens this is included in the things we think about. And if it's helpful to think of it, I, I brought this up in a panel event once, um, instead of thinking of health and safety risk assessments uh, for people in all our business decisions and our workplace, we have to think about the climate uh, safety and the climate risk assessment in all our decisions. We need to, th to have that mindset, fill out your form. What is the climate impact of this decision or this action or this uh, strategic plan for the next five years? And actually, I just remembered, I think the Bank of England, I think Mark Carney came up with a, a like he stated, that climate was a risk for businesses and there's now a... Which has been hugely influential, the transition task for, I always forget, the climate oh, the financial disclosure. Yes, uh, you can that. Google it. He gave a, a talk which was very influential a few years ago and that has been profound, I think, in, in getting businesses to, to think about not just the risks of climate change to their business but the risks of um, not decarbonising and not taking action. A bit like I said, they might get sued in the future because they knew about climate change now and if they didn't act in 10 years they might get sued by people you know pe people are bring taking out their pensions from companies uh, because they are saying well you're endangering endangering my future on this planet you know have we got any other questions out here let's take the next closest one here Do you want to shout out sir should we move beyond sustainability to regenerative i don't know i think what you mean by regener regenerative i think so there's a, there's a distinction, you're making a distinction between, so the question is making a distinction between um, sustainability as keeping the planet running well and actually deliberately building back. I would think sustainability people do include a healthy planet, but I don't know, maybe there are distinctions I don't know about. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a matter of language. Sustainability is a term that we've had for a few decades. Uh, it's a little bit limp now, perhaps sometimes words just get tired after a few decades. And I think uh, regeneration or regrowth a recovery, nature recovery is another term like that, which are about building uh, and not just about, about sustaining. I think just, just subtle nuances in language can make a difference. And I think uh, as you know, hope, uh, hopefully we're beginning to emerge from the pandemic, there's a lot of talk about recovery and rebuilding. And I think it makes it quite an interesting time. I think uh, what the pandemic has done has realized that systemic shocks can happen, uh, that they're not just hypothetical things in the heads of boffins. They, they really do exist in the real world and climate change is one of those systemic issues. It was very striking and to me at the start of the pandemic that, so I think, I mean, everyone talks about New Zealand as being the exception, but in my opinion, the biggest thing that New Zealand did differently to everybody else was they didn't assume they were going to be okay. They went, you know, we know we're a little island. We have earthquakes and volcanoes and terrorist shootings. We know, we know things can hit the fans. So we're going to behave as though the worst could happen. And a lot, most other countries just kind of went, oh, um, there's a problem. Someone will sort that out. You know, that's a slight oversimplification. But that view of they took it really seriously. Um, and, and as a result, they, they have had a much nicer time than us in the past few months. Um, have we got one more question? Well, let's be ambitious and try one of the further away ones. But who's, has anyone got a question at the back with a really loud voice? <laughs> All right. Somebody just stood up over there. Okay, what, so the question is, what can scientists do to communicate as, as effectively as ExxonMobil? Um, who wants to go first? 
uh, have the budget of ExxonMobil. <laughs> um, you know, it, we've been doing our best for a few decades now. You know, and and I think it, it's very easy to get into kind of um, what should climate scientists do or not do, do differently, um, to kind of put the responsibility on us as communicators. And we are key, I'm not saying we're not, to do events like this, to talk about climate change. Um, but there's so much more to it than that. And, I, you know, it, I'm, there's going to be loads of interesting research, I'm sure, in the next few years about where the public uh, and political will has come from over the last few years. I think, um, just to very re quickly recap where I think a lot of it comes from, the Paris Agreement, a lot of it was driven by um, lo uh, the small island states who were very concerned about sea level rise, and they had a tremendous influence on increasing the ambition from two degrees to one and a half degrees. Um, the year after, or the year after that, there were huge heat waves and fires around the world. The same summer that Extinction Rebellion started, that Greta Thunberg started the school strikes, people start to connect climate change with these extreme weather events, these very serious events that we've seen, of course, in the last few weeks and months. And, and, a, and a tipping point of, of will occurs through a, a, a huge number of different factors. Climate scientists trying to say, you know, I mean, the IPCC's first report was 1990. Yeah, like literally climate scientists have been saying this for decades. <laughs> You know, we're, we're, we're on the sixth assessment report now. It's coming out in t uh, two weeks uh, tomorrow. Um, so look out for that. Uh, you know, But I think there's an important point here, which is that actually ExxonMobil didn't communicate. They stayed quiet and they didn't care. It, and what they did was just shut the walls and say, we're not going to say anything of any value. It wasn't that they were heard. It's just that the people who wanted to hear that it was okay heard that. And I think the climate message was much stronger. But if you're dealing with a fortress, then most people are on the outside of the Exxon, the, the big oil fortress, and there's lots of communication going on, and Exxon don't have to care, so they didn't. Yeah, um, and if I, if I can make my last sort of hobby horse point, which is that actually throwing facts at people, do, it doesn't change minds, right? So the only people I'm gonna change the minds of is people who, who trust me, uh, and that's not just about my authority as a scientist, it's about my values and whether they think I'm similar to them, and whether they think I value the same things as them. So it's not about what facts do we send to people and how do we communicate those. It's about trust, and it's about using different methods and different communicators and different speakers to reach different groups in different ways. And actually that turns people off, that's the other thing, is that if you shout facts at people, they it, it actually goes against the cause, which is why you need lots of different messages in lots of different ways for people who are at various stages. What you want is for people to take action. And the message that will get them there is different for everyone, which is one of the reasons the save 10 years to save the planet thing, I think is unhelpful, but some people may find it helpful. And so it's, the point is, so one of the points that I want to make about language, and we are about to finish, is just that um, the, it matters what motivates people, it matters what, what we need to do we need to do, we need to change, we need to actually, we need to bring everyone with us. There is no great big devil and great big, you know, angel. This is a complicated human thing. And the more we point fingers, the less anything is going to get done. And so 
changing, like making positive change and bringing people with us because it's just better. Like, you know, low traffic neighborhoods, the people who live on those streets, most of them, the studies say they love them because their kids get to play on the street and they don't have to worry about loud cars coming past late. It's just better. And so if we do it because it's just better and because it, you know, changes the way people uh, use transport, then we win both ways. So I think the, we are past the stage of, like we basically face in the tribal battle now. We can either shout at every Everyone can shout at everyone, or we can work together, do the much harder work of bringing everyone with us, and that's the thing that really matters. Okay, we are out of time for our discussion on climate and nature, so um, we will be back. Cosme, I will be back with uh, Susie Gage and Dean Burnett in about 10 minutes to talk about mental health. Um, I will be back. Then there's something else, and then I'll be back at 5 to 4, I think, to interview Dan Davis about his book, The Human Body. So there is lots more science coming from Cosmic Shambles this weekend. Do look up Cosmic Shambles online if you haven't been to us. And before you uh, either leave the tent to take a break, please join me in thanking our fabulous two panelists here, Tamandra, uh, Tamsin, and Yavindra. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.